We're in the second half of chapter 19. We started last week with this, this picture, and we're comparing, keep, keep, kind of keep this in mind, two feasts that we're comparing. The first half of chapter 19 is the marriage feast of the Lamb. And uh, every single time that you and I go up to the communion rail and receive the Lord's Supper, there's a little element of that supper that's intended to point us forward to, right, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Why? Because in communion, there's an intimacy there. Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. There's an intimacy there. And so that feast is meant to say to us, there's a greater feast that's coming, one in which you enjoy intimacy with God that is never ending. That feast is getting ready to be compared to a second not so beautiful feast that we're going to see here at the end of chapter 19. And what begins, what begins the second feast is this picture of a white horse, okay? Last week, we kind of made this note. We said, we, we've seen a white horse before, right? Back in chapter 6, remember, we saw the white horse was one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in chapter 6, the white horse that's riding is false religion. And again, to me, the scariest of all of the four horses is the white horse because it looks like the good guy. This looks good. And yet at the same time, it is, it is not good, right? It will kill you. That's its aim, is to separate you from your reliance upon Jesus Christ. During, during the time Luther was alive, remember Luther spent a lot of time talking about Antichristos and Antichristoi, the Antichrist and Antichrists. When you look in the New Testament, you have both, okay? So... The plural of, anti, of Antichrist means what? That, that our enemy, Satan, utilizes multiple people and multiple agencies through which to deceive people. Right? There's not just one Antichrist. There's multiple Antichrists. Luther talked about an Antichrist. If, if he said, if I had to name one, you remember he, who, who he named? He says, I, I would name the one who I think is, is subtly deceiving people into reliance upon themselves over against reliance upon Jesus Christ. It surprised everybody because he named the Pope. And people said, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. The Pope, he, this is religion. This is the church. And, and Luther said, but wait a minute, okay? For, forget the man. Don't think of the man, the Pope. Think of the office of the papacy. What is it? It is a, it is a position that's been established by the church to make judgments over God's word. And um, when you put a person into that position and they make a judgment, and that judgment is that we can, we can now sell you, right, a, a product that will forgive your sins in advance, what are you doing? Antichristoi. That's not of God. That's not of Jesus Christ. When you have a doctrine that teaches that you are not saved by faith alone, but by faith plus my works, what are you doing? Antichristoi. You're deceiving. You're leading people away. Okay, so um, one of the things that John teaches us uh, in his epistles is be careful and test spirits, test churches, test the teaching of churches to see whether or not they're of God. How do you test them? Go back to the, to the word. Put it to the test. Is, is this religion 
saying to me that I, I must rely upon myself in any way, shape, or form, because if it is, it's anti-Christoi. It's taking me away from. So that's the white horse. The second white horse we see is here. All right. Now this white horse is different. Why? Because this white horse is a good one. This one comes in the name of God. And so you get these words in verse 11. Um, the one sitting on, on this white horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Okay, So I always picture it this way. Uh, chapter 19 is taking us to the, the, the end of time, right? The, the judgment upon the beast, the judgment upon um, Satan himself. And, and so at the very end of time, we see the white horse that comes riding in on our behalf, judging. It's kind of interesting. You don't see it right away. Judging, it says, in righteousness. How does he make his judgments? In righteousness. Sometimes we get that word and we think of righteousness as, you know, something almost negative uh, or something kind of super spiritual. The, the Greek word underneath righteousness is kaiosune, is what I call a cross word. And so think of it this way. Whenever you see the word judgment connected with righteousness, it means God judges through the cross. Okay? So through the cross, God makes judgment upon those who live upon earth and upon his enemies. If I trust in the one on the cross, Jesus Christ, I have been made right with God. I am righteous. Okay? If I do not trust the one who died on the cross, then I am outside of righteousness. So interestingly, it's the cross that leads the way as the white horse of Jesus Christ comes towards, towards the very end of time, making judgment upon his enemies. <clears throat> um, second thing that he's described as, <clears throat> he has this... These, these eyes that are like flames of fire kind of takes us back to the very beginning of Revelation. Uh, just a picture of a God who sees, right, through you. <clears throat> Not the surface. God doesn't make his judgment upon us or upon his enemies based upon what we see on the surface. He sees what? Our hearts. His eyes are like flames. On his head are many diadems. What's the hymn that we sing? <clears throat> What's the mini diadem song that we sing? You guys know it. What is it? It's a dentist's favorite song, right? They just, you know, they sing that song as they're drilling into your tooth. Crown him with many crowns. Yes, mini diadems. He's, he's the king. Here's an interesting one. He has a name. It says a name written that no one knows but himself. Kind of a reference back to the fact that God is greater than we are capable of really comprehending outside of the revealed word. God's name is what? A name written upon him that no one knows. That name is I am, right? And um, as Moses faces the bush and says, well, you know what? I cannot just walk into Pharaoh's court and say, someone sent me. I've got to tell him who sent me. What's your name? I am. It describes his essence. It's the, it's, it's the question that uh, we as pastors love to, uh, to hear, you know, when you're teaching Sunday school. Um, 
If you're a Sunday school teacher, you've heard this before, right? In fact, we train our Sunday school teachers how to answer this question. When the little kids say, Pastor, who made God? Right? It's, it's inconceivable to a, to a small child. It's inconceivable. If you got a guy, everything has a beginning point and origin, right? So who made God? The correct answer to that is, you guys know this, right? Ask your parents. <laughs> That's the correct answer to that. <clears throat> parents love that. They're like, why did you send them to me? Well, because it's an unanswerable question. It's sim we simply are, we meet a God who has always been. All right. I always tell my, my evolutionist friends when we get into these conversations about evolution, we go, well, everything has a beginning point, right? Um, so if I talk about evolution and the Big Bang, one of the questions that you ask an evolutionist is what? Where did the matter that created this bang come from? Unanswerable question. I go, wait, 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 wait. You're a scientist. Science is based upon facts. If you're going to represent yourself as factual scientists, then you must answer the question, from whence did this matter come? You can't answer it. Guess what you have? A faith system. You must trust and believe that matter came from something. And so science is what? A religion. And it's very essence. And it's very hard. I, the question that I'm asked by my evolution is, well, what about your God? Where did he come from? I go, I've never claimed that I am not a religion, a, a faith-based. That's what I'm at, about. I, I trust in a God who has always been. This is the name that he bears. He just points to his essence. The I am rides upon the white horse with the cross that acts as his lens of judgment upon those enemies that he has faced. Um, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to take you over to the Old Testament. It says, He is clothed, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Okay? Now for us, we see that picture. You can see the picture of, of the, the fiery eyes and I'm on the white horse and I'm, I'm riding. I've got the crowns upon my head. I can see all of that. Then I see this robe and it's dipped in blood. And I think, what? What is, what is that? Well, it points me to the cross of Jesus Christ, right? But if I'm listening to John and I'm hearing the revelation for the first time, that, that picture, robe dipped in blood, has some, some meaning to it. It actually takes us back to this chapter in Isaiah um, where you, you have a kind of a, a four-picture um, uh, pointing to Jesus Christ, uh, given to us. Just flip over for a minute to Isaiah 63. It's kind of an interesting picture. That's why I always tell people the whole Bible is contained in the book of Revelation. Old Testament, New Testament, you'll find the whole thing in it because as you read it, you see all these pictures and they're composites of pictures that we've already been given in the Bible. Okay, so as Isaiah 63, just the first opening verses, um, these are describing, this is Isaiah the prophet, describing the day of vengeance. Now, in time, Isaiah is pointing to what? God is going to come sweeping in, he's going to free, he's going to free the Israelites from captivity. Okay, but he's pointing beyond that 
to this day the white horse will come and will free mankind, those who belong to him once and for all from their enemy. Look at the language he uses. Who is this that who, who, who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bosrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness. See that? Mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with, me, was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. From the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger. I made them drunk with my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. Okay. This is referring to a God who alone is righteous, who alone can set us free from our enemy. So when you see, go back over to the Revelation, this robe that's dipped in blood, our first instinct is to think that blood is the blood of the cross, right? Well, it's Jesus. It's different, isn't it? Isaiah, the prophet, tells us that that blood is the blood of what? His enemies. I have trampled them down. That's the whole point of this last section of chapter 19 is the white horse comes for the purpose of judgment and will destroy our enemies. There's blood on his robe because it belongs to his enemies. That's what you're looking at. The name by which he is called. Okay. First, first we're told that he has a name written on him that no one knows. I am. But he has names by which he is called. What is the name that, by which he is called? The Word of God. Makes sense coming from John's hand because who is the gospel writer that starts with these words? In the beginning was the Word. It's John, right? So how do we call him? Well, we call him the Word of God, the living Word of God. Verse 14, one of my favorites. One of my absolute favorites. And armies... And the, the Greek word here is kind of a, a, a picture word. Uh, it's stratomata. Like uh, you would think uh, stratos would be layers, right? So you would think of not just the white horse who's in the lead, but now we're told the stratomata, the armies of heaven, are now following him on white horses. Okay. Um, I shared with you guys a picture uh, earlier this year that my brother-in-law, you know, drew for me of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I, I told him, I said, I really want that, that picture. Of course, I put him on motorcycles because he's a motorcycle guy. And uh, I said, I'm going to give you freedom to, to really try to grab hold of what you see when you picture that, those horsemen riding. And uh, he told me that, that he, he drew and tore up three pictures before he came up with the one that, that's now in my office. 
And, and the thing that he put on this last picture that I really like is, if you look at it carefully, you'll see, you'll see a trail that goes back behind the four horsemen that have multiple, multiple people coming. Demons, right? And I think about that because that's true. The war that's going on in your life and my life right now fought on a spiritual plane. Paul talks about it. Do you not know that your enemies are not flesh and blood? How many people woke up today have no clue that the greatest enemy you face is not the one you think you're facing? All of us have this little mental checklist. I've got to make more money. I've got to get a different job. I'm not happy in my relationship. Blah, 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 blah. We've got a list of things. That's not your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is a spiritual one. This is a dragon himself who wants you to spend eternity in hell apart from, from Jesus Christ. Your life here on this earth? Snap. I don't care if you live to be 120. Snap. You're getting ready for the, for the rest of your life. That's called eternity. Okay? Who are your enemies? Demons. Are they real? Absolutely real. What do they do? They hunt you. And Peter gives you the best picture of it, like a lion. Lions just watch you. You ever watch a lion hunt? They just lay there. You're like, that's a stupid, lazy lion just laying there. Oh, no, that lion is doing its work. Why? It's just watching. Making mental notes. Where is the weak one? Where is the one separated from the pack? Because I'm just going to wait till I see that one. Now, when it sees it, bam, it attacks full speed, takes it down, destroys it. When, when Paul went into Rome um, for his trial, one of the things that, that God did through that period of time where he was awaiting his, his trial is, is God used Paul in a, in, and those around him, Silas and Timothy, in a significant way to bring about conversions of, of, of people. And, and one of the things that I always think about when I look at, look at what, what Paul was doing during that period of time is he's bringing people in, into faith and creating a faith community wherein half of the Jewish synagogues that were in Rome when Paul entered into it, actually converted and became Christians. And when Paul dies, everybody goes, yay God, look at what God's done. He's brought all these people into Christianity. Now hang on a second. Doesn't take that group of people in Rome very long before they start to slide a little bit away from there. Christianity. What book of the Bible tells us that? Hebrews. Hebrews is written after Paul is dead, right? To those Christians living in Rome, and what are they doing? Well, they're afraid because persecution is going on. Just this persecution that John is talking about is intensifying. So, what does a church do? Let's hide. Let's hide from the Romans. And the way they hid is they said, we're going to hide in plain sight. Remember, many of them 
continued to worship in synagogues. So the Romans thought they were what? Jews. And the Romans would listen in on what they were teaching, well, so they wouldn't get caught. The Christians said, you know what we ought to do is let's take Jesus, and instead of calling him Lord, Savior, King of Kings, let's call him what? An angel. A messenger of God. Now he's like a Jehovah's Witness. Remember what, remember what the writer of Hebrews says to that church? He tells them basically, if you, you who were brought into faith, if you give up your, your faith, you, you are the worst off of all human beings. And in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, what does he say? He says, I'm calling you, verse 25, to not ever forsake this gathering together of yourselves, especially as you see the end coming. Okay? So what, what about that scares me to death? Here's what scares me to death. It's the Sabbath day today. And here's what I know. In America today, of the, of the builder generation, that's like my parents, 60% of the builder population, Christians, are in a worship service this morning. They're gathering together. They're taking the Bible. They're saying, we need to encourage each other. There's a battle going on. What's happening in your family? What's happening in your life? What's happening in your marriage? How can we lift each other up in this matter? 60% of those are, are in worship today. How about my generation, the boomers? Starts to slide down, doesn't it? Now we can say, oh, now we're about... 35%. We get all the way down to the millennial generation. Young, our youngest folks, what we call our college age group today, 5%. 5%. There's a war going on. And unfortunately, our enemy is like a lion who just sits back and goes, a harvest is mighty. There's all kinds of people who have separated themselves from the only thing that's going to get them through the war. Now, I'm not saying, don't misread me, I'm not saying that quote-unquote going to church saves you. It, it doesn't. Recognize that. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ does. But what happens is when you start to remove yourself from fellowship with other Christians and stop really encouraging each other and praying for each other, lifting each other up, you are now in huge danger, right? That's really what we're talking about here is there's a war that's going on. Fortunately, we have one that fights that war for us, and that's the one who rides the, the white horse here. It's Jesus Christ and, and the Spirit of God. And I, I just, I look at the times that we're living in, and I think more than ever before, how do we as a church say, do, do not, please right now, do not forsake coming together because we can see the end. We can see the end coming. And, uh, and that, that is what the Revelation is painting uh, a picture of. Here comes the white horse and this strata, this layers of now white horses, the opposite of the picture in my office, right? coming against the forces of hell or the forces of heaven. Interesting what it says, verse 14. And the army of heaven is arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Okay, So now you're talking about 
angels that belong to Jesus Christ who come to battle against angels that are fallen and belong to the dragon. Both are interacting spiritually with us all the time. Okay? Um, we'll have to do this sometime as a congregation, just kind of do a study of angels. And I, I love to take time and ask Christians to just share their angel stories. It's amazing to me how many of us have stories of encountering in some way, shape, or form angels. I'm like, they're warriors, all right? They're not chubby-cheeked valentine creatures. They're warriors of God who battle for you in this battle for our uh, souls. Verse 15. Picture this. From his mouth, this is the one who's leading the pack, Jesus Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Okay? Nations here is, is a word that isn't just talking about you know, Germany and Spain and France. It's talking about those who are outside of faith. All right, so um, the Jews would call us Gentiles, and they would use a term that would equate to nations. You're part of the nations. You're not part of the covenant people. All right, so that word gets retained here, and so this sword now will strike down those who are part of what? Those who are outside of belonging to, to Jesus Christ. He will rule them, it says, with a rod Iron. He will rule them with a rod iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. <clears throat> Remember when we read this section from Isaiah, how did that blood get on the robe? Stomping out the winepress. These are people. I'm crushing my enemies. Their blood is getting up on me. Same picture here, except we have added to it the rod of iron. The Jews, when Jesus was um, when Jesus was was really in the midst of his public ministry, why did they reject him as Messiah? Why did they say this one here? He, it's not possible for him truly to be the Messiah. Yeah, he's not a warrior, right? He's not a king. Uh, this one was born in a barn. Right, he's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's just this little. It's not even a. It's not even a postage stamp-sized town. Right, be impossible for this one to be the Messiah. Where did they get their picture from? Where did they, where did they go wrong? Flip over to Psalm two. Pretend you're Jewish, and you're you're reading. Really, probably should say singing, <laughs> the Psalms. Right. And when you go to the Psalms, you have all of these beautiful, Psalm 2, all these beautiful, beautiful pictures of the Messiah. Okay? So, I ask, I'll ask a lot of Jews today, do you believe that the Messiah is still yet to come? Typical answer? Depends, doesn't it? Here's the sad truth. Most Jews, they don't believe in that. They're Sadducees. You live, you die. That's it. There's no resurrection. 
live a good life. There are Jews, though, who say what? Yeah, we're still waiting for the one to come because what has to get restored? The temple, right? So they're waiting for that temple restoration. Where do they get their picture from? Well, look at Psalm 2. Let's pretend you're Jewish and you're reading this and singing this in your synagogues. Why do the nations rage? There's that word again, nations. I will come with a rod of iron to rule against the nations. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples, again, those outside of our tribe, they plot, but in vain. Why do they do that? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, and notice the word that's used here, against his what? His anointed, all right? This is, this is the Jewish word, or one of the Jewish words for what? Messiah. The one who is yet to come. The anointed one. The one who will be the king to come. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So if I'm a Jew, and, and I'll continue, but if I'm a Jew and I'm singing this song or reading these words, here's what I'm really saying. I'm saying all these nations around Israel plotting against us, saying how can we rid ourselves of the Jews? What did Hitler say? How can we rid ourselves of the Jews? What does Islam say today? How can we rid ourselves of the Jews, right? All of them are plotting in vain. It ain't going to work for them, right? In fact, what is God doing? He's sitting in heaven and he is not just laughing, but he's making jokes about them. Holds them in derision, right? He's saying, what are these little puny ants trying to do here on earth? Now, keep reading. Then, in the future, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Where is that? Jerusalem, right? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a, what? rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Jews are reading this and what are they thinking? Our temple is going to be restored to its position of glory. A king is going to come who will with a rod of iron smash those who are not Jews, those who are not part of the bloodline of, of our faith. They're waiting for what? That king to come. Jesus comes. Does he look like this? No, they're all looking at Jesus going, yeah, he didn't have a rod of iron. In fact, he didn't have much iron in him, in him at all. He, he's, he seems humble and meek, and he's definitely not the anointed one that is to come. Because if he were, he, he wouldn't have been born in a barn in Bethlehem and he would be what? He would be the one who is raised up to crush our enemy. Okay. Now, 
How do you read Psalm 2 as a Christian? Who does it point to? In every way it points to Jesus Christ, right? You've got a whole different set of eyes on. You put your glasses on, you're like, wait a minute. Who is Psalm 2 talking about? Well, just look at it. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. What do we say in the creed? Begotten, not made. What is begotten? How do you begot something? Well, you don't give birth to it. It proceeds out of you, right? It is you. It is one with you, and yet separate from you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. What was Satan saying to Jesus during those 40 days in the wilderness? Ask of me and I will give you the world. God says to his son, now ask of me and I will give you the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them into pieces. Okay? So what do we see when we look at Psalm 2? We see Jesus Christ all over it. A Jew living back in the time that the Revelation is being written would say, oh, no, 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 that, this is referring to someone completely different. So imagine what happens when a Jew now hears the Revelation say, this is the one. Jesus is the one. Fire in his eyes, crowns on his heads, the white horse, a trail of stratamata of of white horses and angels that come with him, rules with what? A sword that proceeds from his mouth. He's called the word of God. What does he rule with? The cross. An instrument that you never expected. He rules in righteousness with the cross. This is how he defeats his enemies and rules over them with a rod of iron. So the psalmist was right, pointing forward to this day of judgment that God comes and what's given to him, the enemy's blood upon his robe, he says, I now bring judgment upon the earth. That's what's happening. Okay, flip back over to the, the Revelation. Verse 16. I'm going to get you flipping around just a little bit more. This is kind of interesting stuff. But see how these Old Testament pictures all show up in the New Testament, in the Revelation. Can you see that? It's a composite picture. It's all these different things that have been said about the Messiah, and you put them all together, you're like, oh, rod of iron. Hmm, Psalm. Robe dipped in blood. Isaiah. See how that works? And you now get a picture of who Jesus Christ is. There's one more really kind of cool piece that fits into this picture. I like it. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Where does that take us? It's kind of an interesting one, and you have to think about it in order to get it. I'm going to give you a clue. When a Jew eats, eats kosher food, right, uh, to this day, I, I, eat, I only eat that food that is considered clean. If I'm eating an animal, even if it is considered a clean animal that I can eat, there's a part of it that I cannot eat. We abstain from eating. You know what it is? The thigh. The muscle of the thigh. Why? Goes all the way back to Genesis. Goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 32. Familiar story. 
Just take a quick look at it. Probably one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, Genesis 32. You see where you're at, right? Jacob and Esau. These two brothers get along pretty well. Not so, not so well. Why? Well, because Jacob did what? Stole the birthright that belonged to his brother Esau. Okay. Um, so there's a there's a trick there's a trick question that I always love to ask um, people. I'm like, how long? Remember these two brothers, Cain and Abel. How long? How long? When you go back and look at it historically, how long did Cain hate his brother? How long did he hate his brother? And the answer is what? As long as he was able. <laughs> I told you it was a trick question. I told you it was a trick question. Same thing are these two brothers though, right? They're, they're Cain and Abel all over again. You stole my birthright. What belonged to me? Did he actually steal it? It's kind of interesting, uh, you know, to have that debate with someone because in the end, what you discover is what God gave to Jacob that birthright, even before he entered the world. But his brother hated him. So in chapter 32, guess what gets to happen is Jacob is going to meet Esau. Now, if you're going to meet your brother who's hated you for all these years, what do you do? You kiss up. You brown nose to the very best of your ability. And if you read all of chapter 32, that's what's really going on is, is Jacob is, starts on his way to meet with, with Esau. And, and, and kind of look at verse 1. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Who comes to our, to our battle? When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahaniam, God's camp. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Notice what just happened between verse number one and verse number two. A complete disconnect. I hope you see it. When he starts on his way to meet his brother Esau, who comes to battle for him? The white horse has many white horses. Who are they? Angels. Does he? He recognizes them. In fact, he says, oh, look, this is the camp of the Lord, right? Angels are here. Does he trust in God to help him reconnect with his brother? Does he say to the angels, thank God you're here to fight for me. I have no way to, to, to make this right with my brother. No, he doesn't. What does he do? The first thing that he does is what? He takes matters back into his own hands. You ever do that? Dear God, I need your help with this. I really desperately need your help with this. But give me that back. I'll take care of it, right? It's immediately what he does. So, so what does he start doing? He says, hey, go ahead of me and say to my brother, oh, my Lord, my Lord, your, your servant Jacob says, I've got donkeys and I've got, you know, um, uh, cattle and I've got servants and I'm sending them all to you because you're, you're my Lord and I want to find favor in your sight. He's kissing up to him. 
Abraham. He does this all the way through till, till you get to that point where it's going to happen. You're going to now meet with your brother. Last thing he does, verse 22, it says, that same night he, he, he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Okay? My, my uh, young kids, every time we study this story, will always say to me, well, he, he, had, a, he had more than one wife. And I'm like, yes. Um, always remember when you're in the Old Testament that one of the things that the Old Testament people learned from the nations around them was polygamy. Was God's desire for them to have more than one wife? Never. Do they suffer tremendously because of their polygamy? Absolutely, yes. Does God completely abandon them? No, he does not. But their polygamy is a sin against God. It's separating them from him. Now, look at verse 23. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. The last thing that Jacob does is he's, he sent all these gifts. He's kissed up to his brother. The last thing he does is he sits down and he realizes, guess what? If I'm going to die, which I very well may, I want to die alone. And so, wives, kids, you go over here, you're safe now. Now I'm ready to meet my brother. Is he ready? Not at all. Why not? The one thing he has still failed to do is what? Surrender to God. You, whatever thing's going on in your life right now, whatever issue, battle that's going on inside of you, I don't care what it is, depression, finances, whatever it is, you are not ready to win that battle until you what? completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. You're not ready. You think you're ready. You're not. You're never ready to win the battle until you figure out the battle belongs to the Lord, not to you. And I really think that a lot of our, our problems we, we have brought on ourselves because we we hold on to our issues. Well, I'm going to fix this somehow. I'm going to plot this. I'm going to figure it out. You, no, you're not. There's something beautiful that happens when surrender occurs. And that's this story, right? We all know it. What happens to him? Angel. Who came to him in verse 1? Angels. Here comes now. Angel. And I love the way that it says it. Verse 24 says, a man wrestled with him. That man is an angel, right? who wrestles with him until the breaking of day. What could, what could that angel have done to Jacob? Smashed him. Does he? No. He wrestles with him. Just like many of us today are being wrestled with. By a supernatural angel that's wrestling with you. You know what he's saying? Let go. Give up. Surrender. It's the only way you'll be ready. Oh no, I'm going to wrestle all night long. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. His hip was put out of joint and he wrestled with him until the day light. And he says, I will not let you go until you give me a new name. And of course, what is it that, what is it that happens to him? He gets a new name. From God. 
Okay? When you go all the way back over to the Revelation, let me make this point before we close today. The, kind of the cool thing to me is that hip thigh is joined together, right? On his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's two different ways that Lord that God becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Number one is in faith, through faith, the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we surrender to God. And we put our lives into His hands and we say, you're my King and you're my Lord and I trust only you. Don't trust anything about me. I trust you alone. There's one other way that God becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He takes His rod of iron. And the book of Philippians describes it. He says, on that day that He comes, every knee will bow. And all will confess. He's the one. On that day, judgment occurs. And those who are outside of faith, he's the king, all right. He's the king that now smashes his enemy with a rod of iron. The fact that he's wearing this name upon his thigh points us to the idea that he is king of kings through faith, through that cross, in the lives of those who trust and believe in him. For those who are outside of that faith, oh, he's king of kings, right? And he's Lord of lords. And he will now smash you because the judgment day has come. We will now um, enter into this second feast as we uh, get together next week and look at what I call one of the yuckiest ugh, feasts in all the Bible. Let's pray.